Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the GeoMob podcast. Today's episode is kind of a different one in that my guest um, insists on or asks to remain anonymous. He's, he's coming to me from uh, an undisclosed location somewhere on the other side of the Internet, um, he is the author of the fantastic newsletter uh, and Twitter feed, Line of Actual Control. Um, so if you haven't seen it yet, uh, first of all, I, I highly recommend you you follow him on Twitter and, and get on the newsletter. But it's a very cool um, kind of digital I, – I don't, I don't even know how to describe this. It's like an investigation – digital investigation of social media and earth observation and uh, uh, imagery to put together very kind of compelling um, interesting uh, stories about what's happening in the world. So um, I, I know that's, that's kind of a complex explanation. So, so why don't we dive right in? Um, uh, maybe you want to say hello, obviously do not yeah. introduce yourself, but, um, uh, no worries at all. Uh, yeah. Hi everybody. I'm, I'm line of actual control and I'm, I'm really excited to be here with you, Ed. Uh, I think in a nutshell, my publication of, is about really just finding interesting stories and public data, uh, whether that public data is uh, satellite imagery or social media or databases posted online. Um, anyway, you cut it. Uh, if there's an interesting story in there, I'm happy to tell it. It's very cool, but uh, so I thought maybe the best way to 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 get for the listeners to get it who haven't seen it is let's dive right into one of the actual cases. So maybe you can take us through um, one that I particularly enjoyed, which was a couple weeks ago, was um, kind of what, what's known as sidewalk sheds in New York, um, yes. and and tell us tell us about the kind of research you did there. Certainly, yeah. So New York City has this um, strange phenomenon of uh, sidewalk sheds, which are a form of scaffolding. Uh, made necessary by this rule in New York called uh, Local Law 11, I believe, which basically requires that buildings uh, scaffolding are inspected and, and inspected pretty intensely every five years. And that's a, a, a good and laudable goal. It, it protects uh, civilians and people walking below from being hurt or killed by falling pieces of masonry, which, you know, is not a fun way to go. Uh, but unfortunately, unscrupulous business owners or building owners in the city will uh, actually keep the scaffolding made necessary by local law 11 up year after year after year. They've decided- Why, they, why do they do that? Why, <laughs> I, I, what, I what's the motivation? I, I think the, the uh, issue is, is mostly cost. I think it uh, costs uh, a lot of money and, and um, a decent amount of time and, and construction manpower to uh, put the scaffolding up every five years, You know, do the inspection, which usually takes uh, six or nine months anyway. Uh, and then tear it down again afterwards. Uh, so they figure that they're going to be spending 20% of their time uh, with scaffolding up anyway. Uh, might as well just keep it up year after year, despite the fact that that is expressly not allowed by New York City laws and, and regulations. Okay. So, and so what what was your research about this? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I was kind of benefited in this. Uh, well, <laughs> let me back up a second uh, and say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to tell you that I do live in New York, which is uh, how I dove down this rabbit hole in the first place. Woke up one morning and uh, there was a sidewalk shed outside my building. Um, and sidewalk sheds are pretty annoying because they don't let in any light. Uh, it's basically uh, super ugly and, uh, as I said, can stay up for years at a time. 
so my girlfriend actually found a uh, public database published by um, New York City itself, a map that shows how long sidewalk sheds in each neighborhood have stayed up for. Uh, and usually it's like 9, 10, 11 months on average. Uh, that's to say nothing about the outliers. And uh, that got me thinking about different forms of data that I could use to tell the story of sidewalk sheds in New York. Uh, I particularly landed on, on two, the first being uh, New York City's extremely high resolution uh, ortho imagery, which is published every two or so years, uh, and the uh, database of all construction permits issued in New York, uh, something like a four million line data set. Uh, both of them are published completely uh, free for anyone to use on, on the city's open data portal. Uh, and my line of thinking was essentially that if I could uh, find through the permit database a uh, a, a mapping file, essentially, a, a lat long for every uh, sidewalk shed permit issued on the date uh, that, or uh, in effect on the date that the uh, satellite imagery was taken, I would essentially have a way to validate uh, which sidewalk sheds were uh, legal and which ones were illegal uh, on the date of um, construction. So uh, I basically layered the two files over each other in, in QGIS with the uh, the imagery-based layer um, underneath the uh, the point layer for the uh, satellite, uh, the, the sidewalk sheds, and um, basically started casting around for uh, sidewalk sheds that appeared in the imagery that didn't have a uh, in-force permit associated with them. Uh, and then gotcha. I, I found kind of three or four interesting cases, uh, did a little bit of extra research based on, you know, news reporting, um, some uh, some building information, address information, things like that, and, and found kind of what, uh, you know, I found to be uh, some some pretty egregious offenders. And so, so with the, yeah, the conclusion was that many of them are actually illegal and kind of, you know, a blight on the cities. So, yeah. Um, it, it, very, very cool. Also, I, I particularly enjoy, I have to say, the main way that I consume your, your content is on Twitter. And you kind of put it all in the thread and you take the reader step by step through the yeah. path of how you how you reach these conclusions. Um, and it's, it's usually what, what I find very interesting is like, usually it's, as you say, you find disparate data sources and, and by bringing them together, you're able to kind of draw a conclusion that no one data source would let anyone uh, reach. And that's pretty fascinating actually. Um, how did you get into this? I mean, who, how, how, I mean, at GeoMob over the years, we've had many, many people who have very strange hobbies, let's say. Uh, usually around, of course, geographic data or mapping or whatever. But, but this is an interesting one. So, how? What? What? Yeah. What? Sure. Well, what I'm got you into this? More than happy to be to be added to that that pantheon uh, of, of strange hobby hackers. Um, but I uh, have always been a fan of um, open source reporting outlets. So, uh, ages ago, there was there was Bellingcat. Uh, I mean, Bellingcat's still around, obviously. But I've been interested in Bellingcat for years. Um, BBC Africa Eye, more recently. New York Times Visual Investigations team, uh, they all have really, really uh, cool outfits that basically uh, find um, interesting stories kind of similar to what I do in, in, in public information, in uh, social media and satellite imagery and things like that. I've always been a huge fan of uh, those types of reporting. Uh, and um, 
I think maybe it was like two or three years ago. Uh, I was um, sick for a few days. I was just just homesick and bored out of my mind. And I thought, you know what, I could probably do that too. So I uh, fired up Google Earth, looked for a couple uh, recent news stories, and tried to pin down like exactly on the on the imagery on on the Google Earth imagery where uh, those events had occurred, whether it was like a, an attack, a protest, a speech, whatever. Um, but uh, I think while that is how I started it, the thing that has kept me going is um, the basically just the the desire to know more and more and more and more. Uh, every time I see a um, you know a news article or uh, you know something posted on Twitter or uh, you know something that I'll just kind of like come across in my everyday life, like the sidewalk sheds. Uh, that I want to know more about, I'll immediately write it down, add it to like a backlog of, of things that I want to, to, to look into, and then um, see if there's open data around that, um, that particular idea. So I'll, that's how I kind of like pull that thread. And um, if it leads me to an interesting story, great, um, I'll, I'll write it up. But oftentimes, I'll, I'll just kind of like discard it as well, if there's nothing there, or I'll have a backlog uh, when I have more time or, you know, more information comes out about it. A lot, a lot of the stories obviously have to do with kind of military uh, uh, events or let's say conflict events all over the world. Um, uh, and I, I don't know, it's, it's very interesting. I always find it fascinating how you figure out, you know, from a few pictures and things uh, that the location or the context or, or also kind of, you know, the magnitude of, of these events. Um, uh, one that you did recently that that maybe you could take us through is your analysis of you know the Russian military exercises and and combining that with wildfire data. Can, yeah, maybe definitely. can explain that one because I thought it was, it was really quite clever. Yeah, thank you. Uh, sure. So first of all, I'll say to anybody interested in this type of uh, research or analysis at all, I um, highly recommend checking out some of the resources available online, either through um, Bellingcat is is the big one, but. Uh, um, the digital um, Sherlock program at, at um, BFR Lab and a couple other folks have um, similar resources that uh, basically teach you through teach you how to um, move through these investigations on your own, how to um, you know search for the data, how to um, pinpoint exactly where it's happening or what's happening, um, how to derive the importance of seemingly insignificant clues in in a picture, you know, a license plate, mm. a type of tree, a, a shadow uh, that all help you, you know, combine to help you make sense of, of uh, this information. But to your, to your question um, specifically about the, the wildfire one, it's kind of similar, honestly, thematically to the uh, sidewalk shed piece, because it did involve a, a similar kind of like layering of information. Uh, and what I did for that piece specifically was for, for the wildfire piece was uh, I figured, hey, we know where, um, so I, I should back up a step too and, and say that the uh, Russian military buildup in Ukraine and Russian military activity generally has been on my mind uh, quite a bit lately as, you know, you read the news and see what's what's going on uh, with the Russian buildup there. But um, one of the things uh, that I was trying to you know, get more information about was this buildup. So uh, I figured we know generally, you know, if not specifically, we at least know generally where uh, militaries, in this case, the Russian military are, are training. Um, they're usually these huge ranges that uh, aren't... A, that much of a surprise or really even that much of a secret to anybody. Uh, so if we know where those are, put that aside for a second, uh, we also know, um, thanks to a whole bunch of great 
open data, um, in this case, uh, collated by uh, firms, which I think is higher information for resource management uh, or something like that, uh, basically a system curated by NASA uh, here in the States um, that pinpoints fires all across the, the world. It's a, it's a global system that okay. basically um, establishes fire locations or thermal anomalies, as they call it. Uh, so we know where the fires are happening. We know where the, the military exercises and, and militaries are training. Uh, if we layer over the fires on top of where the uh, th that are detected within where the uh, militaries are training, yes, we'll probably find a bunch of your run-of-the-mill brush fires, grass fires, wildfires, things like that that aren't super interesting, all things considered. Uh, but we'll also probably find uh, an interesting subset of fires that um, were likely sparked or caused by the activities in those training ranges. So uh, hot exhaust from uh, armored vehicles, from airstrikes, from explosions, from gunfire, um, you know, tossed cigarettes, anything really. And, gotcha. Uh, in, in that piece, I essentially go through uh, a couple different ranges and a couple different examples of uh, what might be uh, interesting fires held at, or, or that, that broke out at those ranges. So um, one of the ones that I... Uh, looked at specifically was at a um, like a chemical weapons training uh, facility in uh, like Southwest Russia. And um, granted, there are, are a lot of fires there. So like I said, it could be totally benign. But one of the interesting things was uh, this, um, this exercise or this fire that broke out that was not associated with any previously announced exercises. There was no press releases about it, no um, external information uh, that took place within uh, this, this you know, chemical weapons section of this uh, training facility, which I thought was really interesting. It honestly opened a lot more questions than it answered for me. Um, but, uh, you know, hopefully people who are uh, more of a subject matter expert than I am in uh, you know, Russian military affairs can, can pick up that thread and run with it. How do you get the ideas of which data sets to combine? I mean, how do you, I mean, you just spend your days trolling through open data uh, things. I mean, so far we've talked about the city of New York, NASA, uh, you know, I guess uh, all the different satellite imagery and things like that. How wh wh are you just constantly scanning for new sources, or how do you how do you go about that? Yeah, that, that, that's definitely part of it. Honestly, uh, I I really do just <laughs> look for interesting data that's put up online anywhere. Uh, and I may sound like a broken record here, but um, some of those open source reporting outfits do have um, you know good banks of resources or or um, repositories of information that uh, folks who are interested in this sort of thing um, can check out for their own, you know, take on, on particular stories or their own uh, threads to pull. So um, I just kind of like a couple of them off the top of my head. Um, the, the one that I, I like use day in and day out and and probably on it daily is uh, Sentinel Hub. I uh, absolutely love their imagery. It's uh, totally free and, uh, you know, a little bit low, low resolution, but ultimately a uh, huge, huge proponent of uh, their open data. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I could not do what I do without uh, Sentinel Hub. Um, the firm's one I, I've mentioned, uh, the fires, um, points data set is super, super useful. Uh, I think I've done like two or three pieces about, about firms. Um, uh, one that I've been kind of like getting into more and more lately are uh, data sets that are not like specifically put online, but more through either uh, scraping or an API or something like that. I will, um, you know, pull the data that they have available. Um, so like an example of this is uh, the, um, New York Times back in December put up a uh, 
really, really good and very comprehensive piece about uh, the U.S. military's um, airstrikes in Syria and Iraq. And um, while the, the piece itself was, it was amazing and, and really, really powerful, um, I thought one of the things that um, it didn't have in it were any kind of like graphics or um, cartographic um, depictions of what they were talking yeah. about. And they have this, this data set that's, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of lines long. And I was like, oh, man, I, I wonder if I can I wonder if I can uh, grab some of that information and uh, try to make some kind of like visual depictions of what they're actually actually talking about. So um, that was an instance in which I uh, put together a bit of a scraping script to um, pull that information and uh, and, and you know, write up like a little description of where these airstrikes occurred, when they happened, um, and uh, a couple maps for uh, you know comparing kind of like the uh, DoD's allegations of airstrikes versus um, other kind of uh, folks who are who are describing these airstrikes. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was just kind of like another one of those pieces that uh, was built off this you know really solid uh, foundation of reporting by the by the Times that. Um, had a thread that I wanted to pull in it and I pulled that thread, um, you know, until I wrote a piece out of it. Actually. How, how long does a typical, I don't know what you even call them, a story or a piece or an investigation. How long does it typically take? Is it more like something you, you, that goes, it's kind of ongoing over a period of time. And at some point all the pieces come together or is it, you know, I mean, imagine you like up in your room at four in the morning pacing, <laughs> like, you know, overflowing ashtray as you're like, <laughs> You know, yeah, exactly. moving pins on the map and stuff, and yeah, uh, the, the Charlie Day meme where he's just like, you know, pointing at the uh, the exactly, like the exactly, and everything. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, that is certainly part of it. Uh, I would say the pieces fall into one of two categories. One of which is uh, those pieces that are written in basically one feverish spurt uh, from beginning to end. Uh, when I know I have a like interesting nugget of data that I, and, and I am like feeling good about writing. I uh, am super interested in this. I just need to write this up as soon as possible before I get kind of knocked off my focus. So uh, one of an example of that would be um, when I found uh, the training course taken by um, uh, some coup plotters in, in West Africa, it turned out that they had been um, trained by the United States and uh, the U S state department had put uh, information about training courses taken by uh, like partner or allied militaries ar around the world. And it just so happened that I read a news article that included just enough details to kind of cross-reference uh, this training um, data set with the details mentioned in the news article and essentially pin down that, uh, yes, this particular training training course in uh, this data set uh, was the course, you know, this U.S. Special Forces course taken by uh, these people who went on to later plan and carry out a, a coup in West Africa. Um, so that was one that I, I just like had, I found the the data, the line of data and I was just like, I, I need to write this up right now. Uh, and yeah, basically wrote it in one, one kind of feverish day off of work. Uh, the other ones are, the, the other category of um, pieces I write are kind of what you were alluding to about these more like long-term investigations that uh, require more of a plotting approach to collecting the data, um, you know, flagging interesting items in it, uh, drawing conclusions, and then ultimately, you know, sometimes kind of like asking people if I'm on the, on the right track, getting other folks to you know, verify my, my findings and stuff like that, and um, then ultimately writing the piece. So uh, an example of that is um, one I put out, I think it was over the summer, where uh, 
had been compiling this database of uh, Ethiopian soldiers who had posted on Facebook and had posted on TikTok uh, videos of them boarding or uh, flying on Ethiopian Airlines jets. And the I, I, I remember this one. Yeah, it was a very cool one. Yeah. Oh, yeah, thank you. I'm glad you liked it. Uh, the, the background is that Ethiopian Airlines had been adamant, absolutely adamant, that they did not um, transport soldiers, that they... Uh, you know, never touched the conflict happening in, in the northern part of Ethiopia um, and were com otherwise completely disassociated from it. Uh, I, like I said, went on this kind of Facebook tear uh, over the space of probably a couple of months, honestly, and uh, just kept adding and adding and adding uh, photos, you know, selfies and pictures with, you know, guys around their, uh, you know, arms around each other and in front of Ethiopians Airlines aircraft. Uh, and built this database, uh, and then asked a couple, um, you know, flight trackers, um, people who are really involved in the flight tracking community online, uh, if, you know, I was on the right track, if this all kind of stands up. And um, they kind of gave me the, the thumbs up and the green light. And um, I did a bunch of, you know, ad additional research from there, kind of uh, locating some of the photographs, um, building out case studies uh, from kind of like, this soldier took a picture here, he was spotted here, the plane flew here, and then he later ended up here. Uh, and that took me a lot longer, like I said, probably three or four months from, from start to finish. But uh, those kind of like longer form investigations do, as you know, <laughs> I just mentioned, take quite a bit longer. It's a, it's amazing dedication because I mean just to be clear this is not your job right I mean this is yeah. this is your hobby this is yep. Uh, so yep yeah I've got a day job and yeah I do this on my spare time it's phenomenal well your 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 reference to that that story about Ethiopia um, raises a good point that I wanted to ask about because I've seen in several of the investigations you do exactly what you described where you you kind of find images on social media. Mm -hmm. um, not from like official sources, but from from kind of participants in the conflict, mm -hmm. who um, you know like sharing a selfie or the, of, of, of you know two soldiers or whatever just hanging out, and mm -hmm. and then you you take those images and you're able to extract quite a lot of information from them. So uh, I mean, can you tell us a little bit about that process and and you know which networks you on and this whole concept of kind of. Um, you know, digital leakage, I guess, of information that people, you know, and you can tell from the pictures that people are completely unaware. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's crazy because you have, you have these soldiers who are like on some offensive that presumably is like, you know, a secret and they're posting it on Facebook and stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's wild. <laughs> yeah. It's so it's hilarious. Um, well, I don't, I don't know. Take take us through that kind of how, how you do that. And is this, do you think this is going to be, is this just the nature of kind of modern conflicts and, uh, you know, is the next war going to be like live streamed on TikTok and stuff? Or is it, do you think uh, armies will kind of, or, you know, governments will clamp down on this or you know, take us through some of your experiences though? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I want to chuckle here, but it's, uh, you know, still pretty grim stuff. You know, we're, we're talking about war and life and death here. Uh, but um, at a certain point, you just have to kind of realize what an absurd situation this is. There's just people, you know, who are, uh, you know, fighting on battlefronts, you know, live streaming, taking pictures of themselves, taking pictures of their friends. Uh, the whole situation is just so, so weird. Um, and I think if you had asked me that question, maybe four or five years ago before starting the blog, I probably would have said, yeah, it uh, completely makes sense for uh, governments to crack down on, uh, you know, their, their soldiers or their combatants or people in the conflict zone to uh, post to social media or, or, or post pictures of what they're doing. Um, but uh, now I'm not so sure, you know, three or four years later on, I have written, um, I'm trying to think, 
uh, at least three or four posts off the top of my head, um, just focusing on public data posted by soldiers in conflict zones. Uh, and I think that's a trend that we'll probably see more and more of. So maybe, uh, you know, governments themselves will uh, try to, you know, squash a particular outlet or, or a particular, um, you know, mode of posting or something like that. But um, yeah, I mean, I think those, those, those pieces of information, those, you know, pieces of uh, media sent from one person to another or posted on a, a platform um, somewhere, at least, are going to keep, keep getting posted. Um, I mean, it's been a pretty consistent pattern recently. I, I, well, I'm reminded of, um, you know, I, there's the kind of obvious information, like, like where they block and say, okay, you can't access Facebook or whatever, but the, um, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you're familiar with this case of the guys, the soldiers training in Afghanistan using their Strava devices. Oh yeah, of course. And, yeah. you know, they, they would, they would run, they couldn't leave the base. They were in some top secret base or they couldn't leave the base. So they'd kind of run in circles. And it would just kind of then on on Strava, you know, there's a big blight blip where everyone's yeah. running in circles and up in the hills of Afghanistan. So obviously, then you know exactly where the secret base is. Yeah, exactly. So, there's um there's an investigation. I think it was published by the Times earlier this year of the um, salt pit in Afghanistan, which is like this code name for a like secret prison, basically that was uh, run by the CIA, I think, and then demolished uh, right before the evacuation uh, from Afghanistan. And just out of curiosity, I, I looked on Strava, and, and I should say also that part of the Times' investigation was um, uh, built around the fact that there were so, so, so few pictures of uh, of the salt pit, like, in existence, you know, that you could count them on one hand. They, they just didn't exist. Uh, but I looked on Strava, just out of curiosity, and saw a bike route that somebody had, like, biked back and forth, out, uh, like, in, on the road in front of the salt pit. And I was like, man, just what I wouldn't give to be in that person's head and just like see uh, the bike route that he took like in front of this, um, you know, uber secret CIA prison that has you know three pictures in existence of, uh, of, of it just period. Um, yeah. So, but all to say that, that, uh, you know, even the, the most secret sensitive locations sometimes get uh, you know, snooped by unsuspecting bike riders. Well, it also, it also reveals just how much information is being, collected about you yeah. that, that you probably i mean i'm sure this guy probably had absolutely no idea right yeah, and right. It, it just it's just you know he has the app on his phone or whatever device and it's just the information is being collected and getting yeah. getting then broadcast and he has no idea so it, it, um, it actually reminds me of um something i was going to mention earlier but totally blanked on was uh regarding kind of like posts that i write or that are just in the the zeitgeist about um you know public data and, and the military is I think one of the things that I've really realized over the three or four years of writing this, um, maybe two or three years, I don't know, uh, of writing this is just how much information we, but in particular militaries, kick off. I mean, there are the, um, you know, if you think of the different kind of like angles of attack, there's like the personal angle, people posting it on social media, people posting it on, you know, Twitter, people sending pictures to each other. There's like the official angle, there are press releases, there are, there's news reporting, there's um, spokespeople. There's the sensor information, so satellite imagery. There's firms. Uh, you know, there are um, uh, kind of like aggregated historical releases of, of information and things like that. Uh, and all that is to just say that uh, it's 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 really monumental how much uh, information um, modern militaries kick off, and I, I think that kind of works to my benefit and the benefit of others who are looking into this type of info. 
Yeah, it makes you wonder in the future, I mean, is it possible to keep anything secret or, uh, uh, you know, truly... Uh, but but then, then you can flip that in the other direction, right? It's like, I'm sure savvy militaries will start kind of faking this information, right? And and then on the other side, you you know you you see pictures of guys at an airport or whatever, and you don't know is it real? Is it is it not? Or yeah. so you get to the point where you can't trust the information. You you can you're you're drowning in a flood of information, and the, the real information is in there, but you don't know what it is. So yeah, we might be you know unbeknownst to us, we may be in a, a golden age of open source information where uh, you know. Folks in charge haven't cottoned on to uh, the, um, you know, the, the possibility of releasing uh, additional disinformation into this kind of like uh, open source milieu. Um, and uh, if they do, you know, we might have to form another set of tools and techniques to weed that out in the first place. Well, that will that will keep you busy. You'll have to. You'll, <laughs> it's good that you have challenges ahead of you, I guess. Absolutely, so. Yeah. Um, wouldn't be fun if it was. Um, well, that, that raises a good question. What does the future hold for you? you how, how did you go forward? Just you're going to keep on cranking out your your yeah. your articles? Or? Yep, absolutely. So so I'm going to, um, yeah, keep, I publish, you know, uh, once every two weeks. And I um, think I'm going to, uh, you know, keep, you know, retaining that that uh, publish, publication cadence, uh, of course. But, um, you know, at some time in the future, I don't know if that's a year from now, two years from now, some type some point, you know, way, way down the line, uh, would like to, um, you know, eventually do this full time. I'm not sure what that looks like. Um, not sure, you know, if there's monetization involved or, or partnerships involved or anything like that. But, um, yeah, I think, I think at some point that's, uh, you know, a conversation I want to have and something I want to start thinking about. Very cool. And if, um, if listeners out there have ideas for you or questions, how can they best get in touch with you? What's the, what's the way to, uh, any method. Um, we, we can drop these all in the show notes, but uh, the uh, you can hit me up on Twitter at LOActualControl. Um, you can email me at lineofactualcontrol at protonmail.com or, uh, you know, if you want to get updates about the newsletter, like I said, I will not spam you. I only send it out once every two weeks. Uh, the majority of, of emails you get will be uh, posts, um, investigations, um, and you can sign up for that at actualcontrol.substack.com. Well, we will absolutely get all of that in the show notes. And I highly recommend the newsletter to anyone uh, out there listening because it's, I find it very stimulating. Even, you know, not, not every topic is one that I'm familiar with or, or um, you know, even that I'm a part of the world that I'm particularly interested in, but it's always very interesting seeing learning the methods that you use and, and how you went about kind of reaching the conclusions that you did. So it, it's actually quite fascinating. So. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Um, I think one of the last things I would say too, and, and you alluded to is uh, like the strength of the community. I love hearing from folks. I love speaking with folks uh, who are involved in the open source community. So, you know, if you have any, ever have any ideas or uh, want to, um, you know, collaborate on something, hit me up. I'm, I'm always happy to talk. All right. So there you go, listeners. Get, get your ideas in and check it out. And with that, we will say thank you very much for coming on the show. Amazing. Thanks so much, Ed. Bye. Take it easy. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and listening to the GMOP podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any um, suggestions for topics that we should uh, cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomop.com. 
while you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. Um, you can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is Geomob. Um, you can follow Steven at Steven Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. Um, you can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode, and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.